readings tonight, and the first one's from Leviticus uh, chapter 16. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering and to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it as a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And the next readings from Ephesians chapter 1. Starting at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Good afternoon, everyone. It's lovely to be here today. And I'd like to especially welcome all of those people who are online today, particularly everyone at West Ride. It's lovely that you've come online Hopefully all of us will really enjoy thinking about the power of the cross tonight. What is the power of Jesus that he expresses in his death and resurrection? 
we decided to do this series earlier in the year because we thought it would be a really good uh, thing to look at um, after Easter, that at Easter we remember every year, don't we, that Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. But we move through that so quickly each year, don't we? It's almost like we have this terrific weekend and Last uh, weekend when we had uh, Easter services, we had uh, something like 600 people come along to the three services we had over one weekend, which was really delightful, and we spent a lot of time in fellowship, and we had a lot of time in God's Word. But uh, Karen Sell, our training pastor, thought it might be a great idea if we could actually just spend a bit more time thinking about the cross, and not just because the cross is a wonderful doctrine that we all love, and it's a really important part of the Christian life. In fact, it's actually the centerpiece of the Bible story. I mean, the the whole idea is that uh, the Bible is written as the story of God's rescue mission to the world, and we see that rescue mission take place on the cross. Uh, I might just pause for a second. I'm getting a bit of echo out in the other room. Is Is that happening for anyone else, or could someone maybe close the door, or you guys out there can't hear? You can hear? You're okay outside. Sorry to everyone online if we just sort ourselves out for a sec. We might just see if we can sort that echo out a little. Hopefully you can still hear. Can you still hear out there, Julie? Is she saying yes? She can't see me. Oh, well, that's, that's a shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, we'll work on that. So hopefully we'll get that echo sorted. But um, at least if you can hear me, Julie, that'd be really good. Um, what I, what I want to reflect on is... It's a little bit hard to talk about this, but the reality is in the world today, the cross is actually a really controversial issue. And I don't know if you're super aware of that. Uh, Sometimes uh, when we go to church week in, week out in our local church, we're not always aware of uh, big issues in theology that are happening around the, the, you know, the Bible colleges around the world. But at the moment in the world, there's a lot of controversy around the idea of God's atoning, uh, Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the sin, on the cross, sorry, for sin. Uh, the controversy seems to revolve, revolve, uh, revolve I apologize, around the idea that the cross was such a violent moment in human history. And there's this questioning of why did God actually have to have Jesus die on the cross? And some of the critics have been so loud in their uh, criticism of Jesus' dying on the cross for our sin. Why did he have to do that? Like, why did you have to die for, for sin? That some of the critics are even calling uh, on God and saying that God is actually abusing his son, that he's like a child abuser because he's put his son on the cross. So these, these ideas are leaking out into local churches and, and more and more Christians are asking these kind of questions. And even uh, Christians that aren't aware of some of these controversies uh, sometimes can be really confronted by, by, by this teaching. It, you know, sometimes we talk about it so much in the context of the Christian community that we get used to talking about Jesus dying on the cross. But it was the most barbaric execution device that the Romans could think of. Uh, so why did Jesus have to die? And why do, does he have to go to such great lengths to save us? And in fact, what is he saving us from? So what I want to do tonight is start the series with a bit of a... Um, a bit of a Bible flipping exercise. If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to flip between a few Bibles because what, uh, sorry, passages, not Bibles. Um, But what you're going to find um, as we go through tonight and we look at the cross in a bit of detail is we're going to see that it is actually God's good plan to save us uh, and and God is good all the time. Um, My very good friend Jason Baku used to say the start of every Bible study before we started reading the Bible study when I was in the Iron Squad with him, he used to start off leading the Bible study by saying God is good 
and we'd all respond by saying all the time. And then Jason would say, God is good. No, sorry, I'll say that again. I'm a bit tired today, by the way. Ethan had a party today and I've been making um, bacon and egg rolls all day, so I'm a little bit fatigued. But um, I'll try and get a bit sharper here. Let's, let's remember this. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Yeah, that's right. So that's what we say at the beginning of every Bible study. And why would we do that? Well, it's to remind us that no matter what we read in the Bible, whether it's something that we find encouraging and soothing or something we find confronting, the God who spoke those words is good. And my, my purpose in uh, this sermon tonight is that God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And so if he decides that this is the way he's going to save the human race through Jesus dying on the cross, that is the best way for us to be saved. And in fact, it's the only way for us to be saved. And that's the premise that I'm working off as I look at Scripture tonight. So we're going to have a look at uh, this controversy. Um, but before we do, I just want to think quickly about the outcome of the cross as well. So the cross is controversial, but let's look at the outcome of Jesus' ministry. And there's a really beautiful example of the outcome of Jesus' powerful ministry and how powerful the cross is when you look at his own discipleship group. In the time of Jesus, the society was very, very divided and polarised because in Israel, the Romans had come in and they'd conquered the people of Israel. So these oppressors had come in from the Roman Empire and they'd taken over everything. And they were taking money out of the people to send back to Rome. They were controlling them with soldiers. There was a whole heap of oppression going on. And there was two ways, uh, two big ways that um, I suppose some Jews were responding to that. There were the Jews that got on board with the Romans and actually helped the Romans to oppress their own people. An example of that were the tax collectors. And you'll remember from Scripture that time and time again, Jesus actually comes in contact with tax collectors. The tax collectors not only took money off the people of Israel, but actually took more than they needed so they could line their own pockets. So they were greatly hated by their own people. But they thought the best way forward was to get on board with the oppressors. Now, not all the Jews just put up with that. There was a group of Jews called the Zealots. Have you ever heard of the Zealots? The zealots were freedom fighters, and they were the complete opposite of the tax collectors. The freedom fighters were the ones who were, were actually trying to overthrow the Roman government. So here you had these freedom fighters and these tax collectors in the same community. Very polarised, isn't it? Two very stark political choices about how to deal with this problem of the Roman Empire. One was, just go with it. And the other one was, well, we're, we're actually going to fight against this. And um, interestingly, in Jesus' own 12, the 12 disciples, how did Jesus decide to react to the Roman Empire? Did he join in with the Romans and try and benefit from the Roman occupation? Or was he a freedom fighter and a zealot setting out to overthrow the Roman Empire? Well, the interesting thing about Jesus and his group of 12 disciples was they had a third way. Jesus' mission was to overthrow all injustice and sin through his own death on the cross. By allowing the oppressor to crush him, he was going to crush oppression. And when you look at his discipleship group, what kinds of people did he ask to join his discipleship group? Was it from one political faction from within the Jewish community? Or was it from all the people who were in the centre and weren't on either side of either the zealots or the tax collectors? Well, interestingly, in Jesus' own 12, 
he had Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector. And if you want to see the power of the cross, you just have to look at that particular group of people and see that two people who hated each other and two people had, who had two completely different political views were in the 12 with Jesus. How did they manage to do that? Because they were in that group because of Jesus. That's why they're in that group. And Jesus is the one who died on the cross for all of us, not just right-wing people or left-wing people, not just tax collectors or zealots. There's not just one political position that has all the answers to sin in this world. Jesus is saying, actually, no human political system deals with the problem of sin. The only way to deal with the problem of sin is if he actually dies in our place on the cross, and that is what can bring true reconciliation. This is a dominant theme in the scriptures, and that's why I want to do a bit of Bible flipping tonight, because I want to actually show you tonight that this idea of atonement, uh, which is an interesting word, by the way, we use that word atonement because it's, like, it's almost like we were rebels and enemies of God, and then Jesus dies on the cross for our sin, our sin is the only barrier between us and God. And when Jesus dies on the cross and we repent of our sin, we become at one with Jesus and at one with God. We are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other as a result. So let, let's have a look at that through the scriptures. I want to start at the very beginning, really briefly, and I want to speed up and then I want to slow down a bit as we go through the Old Testament here and have a look at this idea of the atonement because it's a very ancient idea. It goes right back to the Old Testament but what was the need for the atonement for the, for, in the first place? Well, human beings have a very, very profound problem. The first two human beings didn't have the problem. The first two human beings, Adam and Eve, were made perfect. But the very first two human beings decided that they would rebel against God's commands and Adam and Eve ate the fruit off a tree that God told them not to eat off. Despite the fact that they could eat off any other fruit off any other tree in the whole garden of, of Eden, they could have ate, eaten anything they wanted but as soon as they actually looked at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and went, we want that one. That's the one God's told us not to eat off. We're going to have that one. And Adam and Eve together ate the fruit off the tree and they sinned. That's the technical theological word for rebellion. They were like rebels. Not zealots against, rebels against the Roman Empire, but rebels against the king of heaven. And the problem with that first sin is that all their descendants are all born with the same problem of sin. Now, this as well is a very controversial issue. This idea of original sin is incredibly controversial in our generation because there are many who would suggest that we are born perfect and it's our society that corrupts us. And that's why people lean into so strongly right-wing or left-wing political opinions because the idea is that if people are born perfect, the society corrupts them. If we can fix the society, then we can fix the problem of sin and we can get rid of evil and injustice. But Jesus says to his generation, and he says to our generation, no, the political system doesn't create the problem, you do. There was a point where both Matthew and Simon had to humble themselves and realise that despite their strong political opinions, both of their strong opinions would not change the world. Only their master Jesus could change the world. And so what we have in the Old Testament is this description of sin as original. That means that all of us are born sinful. Romans chapter 1 deals with this, if you want to dig into this a little bit more later on. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about the fact that we are all sinners. 
Now, I was just recently on a tour down in Port Arthur in Tasmania, and we were being taken around a penal colony. And the guy who was leading us, the, the guy who was the guide, he wasn't a big fan of the British Empire, and he was letting us all know. And he was saying, you know, the British Empire, they've done this, done that, done that. He was going on about it for about an hour. And I nearly said to him at one point, mate, you should be thankful for the British Empire. If you didn't have, if you didn't have the British Empire, you wouldn't have a job. She wouldn't have anything to show anybody around. But Lou told me not to say that, because that would have been insensitive, and it would have been. <laughs> and the poor convicts that suffered under the, the extreme brutality, and the Aboriginal people who suffered under the br extreme brutality of those regimes, uh, it was a terrible, terrible uh, time. But having said that, the funny thing was that he said that the, the Christian missionaries that were a part of that Port Arthur settlement, the chaplains, were part of this insidious British Empire. And he laughed at one of the chaplains at one point. He said, oh, the chaplains, yeah, they used to say the convicts were sinners. And there was a chuckle went up in the group. Oh, fancy calling someone a sinner. Oh, sinners. Isn't that terrible and backward to call people sinners? He said, yeah, do you know what they used to do? They used to call the convicts sinners, and they were the sinners, and that's why they punished them so badly. And I just looked up on my phone while he was talking, and I googled the first chaplain of the uh, Port Arthur convict settlement, and I found out that this gentleman was actually a Wesleyan. And again, I nearly have, had a response to this guide, but look, again, Lou quite wisely told me not to bother. Just, just be quiet, Stuart. This isn't for you to be preaching. It's let the guy do his little thing. But I found out that he was a Wesleyan. The reason that I was going to say something about that is Wesleyans were reformed evangelical Christians who believed that the Bible says about sin. They believed in a thing called original sin. So the irony was that the, the chaplain in the prison camp would have considered himself just as much a sinner as the convicts. So yes, he called the convicts sinners, but he called himself a sinner too. So the guy was only telling half of the story. See, what's important that we do tonight, we don't have time to unpack all of it, but we need to know the whole story if we're going to understand our faith these days. Once upon a time, Christians could just skim over the top of the Bible and just know bits and pieces about things. But the more and more that we have the pressure to explain what we believe, I think we need to dive deeper into the Word of God. And thanks to our sister Karen for identifying, this is one of the things we need to get our heads around a bit more. This, 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 this four weeks is only going to cover bits and pieces of the atonement, but in our Bible studies we're going to go over it as well and we've got some devotions for us to do. And it's really important because it's not only for us to really understand that, that we are born sinners and we need a saviour, but we need to be able to whimsically and helpfully, without judgment and, and coming across as arrogant, help other people understand their need of a saviour too. Because we live in an Australia where people don't think they need saving from anything because they think they're born well and all the problems in their life are created by the society around them. And then they argue about how the society needs to be changed. If we look into the story of salvation after Adam and Eve, we see some really beautiful things. We see that... We need salvation. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, many Australians would say, Wow, that's a bit harsh. If, okay, Stu, if I am born in original sin and I am a sinner, why does that lead to death? Well, my answer would be, Who are we to say? Who are we to say? You know, God is perfect. He is loving, he is kind, he is generous, he is good. 
all the time. And we can't even be good some of the time. Like our Wesleyan forefather who was trying to be a good chaplain in a penal colony, we as Christians who have accepted Christ are still sinners. We can't arrogantly look at other people in the world and say that we are perfect when we're not. We are sinners. We need Jesus as much as everybody else. And when we read about the rescue mission that Jesus has um, initiated with, with God his Father and the Holy Spirit, as we were heard it, taught in Ephesians chapter 1 tonight from the very beginning, before the creation of the world, God's plan was to save us. We need to humble ourselves and understand that this is important. And I hope now as I go through some of these things from the Old Testament, we might get a bit of a picture of just why sin leads to death. Let's just have a look back at um, Genesis 15. In Genesis 15, and I'm just going to turn there, you might want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 15 as well. In Genesis 15, we have this really interesting story about the covenant or the promise that God makes with our spiritual ancestor, Abraham. Abraham was commanded by God to um, set up a little ceremony in Genesis 15 to set up the relationship he was going to have with Abraham. Remember in chapter 12, he promised Abraham that he was going to make Abraham a great nation, that he was going to give him land, and that he would, through him would be a blessing to the whole world. With our frame of reference tonight, we know how important that blessing is, don't we? We need the world needs blessing because we're all sinners and we need saving. That's the blessing we need, right? So what God does very beautifully is give us a ceremony here that we get insight into in chapter 15. This is what happens in verse 8. Uh, actually, I'll start a little earlier. Um, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. And he commanded Abram to cut the bigger animals in half and put half of the carcass on one side and half of the carcass on the other. And it made like a little alleyway of carcasses. And then he also commanded him to put the pigeons, and you can read this later yourself in chapter 15, he commanded him to put the pigeons there too. And then he said to Abram, I want you to sit down and I want you to wait. And so that's what Abram did. And then Abram falls asleep and he has a dream. And in his dream, he dreams about a fire pot, a pot of fire, and a smoke pot, a smoke where there's smoke coming off the pot, going in between the carcasses on the ground. Now, from what I've read, in the ancient Near East, when Abram was alive in the Ur of the Chaldeans, if someone wanted to buy a block of land, they would take an animal and they'd cut it in half and they'd lay it on the ground, one half there, one half there of the carcass. And then the two parties would walk in between the two carcasses. It was like signing, I promise that I will do what I say I'll do in our culture on a piece of paper. Or it's like a really ritualised handshake. I commit to you that I will do what I say I'm going to do. My promise is that I will give you the money for the land and I'll walk through these dead animals to prove that I will give you the money of the land. And the, the, the weightiness of this symbol, though, was that if I break my promise to you and I don't give you the money for the land, may I be like these animals on the ground. May I die. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? But that was their way of shaking hands. Heavy. So Abram's familiar with this. 
God's given him a ritual that he's familiar with. And God says, take the heifer, take the goat, take the sheep, take the doves and kill them and cut them in half and put them there and then wait. Now, when Abram sees the fire pot and the smoking pot go between the animals in the dream, the interesting thing is that a smoking pot and a fire are two symbols for the presence of God. Remember later in the story when the people of Israel were going through the desert? Do you remember that story in the Exodus? What went before them? A a column of smoke and a column of fire went before the people of Israel. And that was God himself leading them through the, the desert. He was there with them. He was leading them. And so here we have this interesting scene. Instead of Abram and God walking between the animals, he's made a a covenant with Abram, right? He said to Abram, I will be your God and you will be my people and you need to promise that you'll do that and I need to promise that I'll do that. But if either of us break the promise, I will die. That's That's what Abram gets told. Not Abram, if your descendants break my promise, they will die. If your descendants break this promise, this covenant with me, I will die. Isn't that astonishing? That's not what's supposed to happen. The person who does the wrong thing is supposed to die, not not the people who did the right thing. But time and time again, despite the fact that God saved Abram and he did become a great nation, the people of Israel did get given the land in Israel, they continued to worship other gods and they continued to be sinners. They continued to live in sin. And we know that God sent them into exile under the Babylonians, but even then he gave them grace and he brought them back. And so what we get from that is this amazing, amazing thing that says that I will die if you don't do the right thing. Now, were the people of Israel off the hook? Well, no, not quite. There was still the expectation that they were meant to try and be holy. If God is holy, they were trying to be holy too. And under their leader, Moses, in the Passover, in in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, we read this interesting thing that when the plagues came on Egypt and the last plague, the one where God was going to kill all the firstborn of the Egyptians to put a plague on them so that they'd let the people of Israel go, he commanded the people of Israel in chapter 12 to put the blood of a lamb over the doorpost so that when the angel of death passed over the city, their house would get passed over. It's almost like that lamb died in the place of the firstborn son. So that's interesting. Keep that in mind. Now, when the people of Israel do escape after the Passover and their sons are kept safe, they go out into the desert and God takes them to Sinai. And when they get to Sinai, Moses goes up and gets the Ten Commandments. It's a bit of an extended story that we don't have time to go into. But eventually what happens is those Ten Commandments are put in a box. Do you know what the box is called? The Ark of the Covenant. They get put in a box Now, the Ark of the Covenant, no longer is it just the smoke and the fire that leads the people through the desert. Now they carry the Ten Commandments in the Ark of the Covenant and they set up a tent in their tent city every night called... Does anyone know what it's called? The Tabernacle. And in the Tabernacle, they set up a sacrificial system so that the people of Israel, when they break the Ten Commandments, they can offer sacrifices to God so that they can be forgiven for their sin. And the high point of the Jewish festival was what the Jews call Yom Kippur, which is the Day of the Atonement. 
And in Leviticus chapter 23, we heard from 16 and 20, we're going to learn from 23 as well, that in those passages we hear that the Day of Atonement was the one day a year that was the most important day because on that day an animal would be killed for the sins of all the nation, right? Let me describe it to you. First of all, we'll have a look at Leviticus chapter uh, 23. Let's have a look at that. Just give me a moment and I'll bring it up in my notes. Leviticus 23, I'm going to read from. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present food offerings to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord, those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from the people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you and you must deny yourselves from evening of the ninth day until the month, until the following evening you observe the Sabbath. So what we have here in Leviticus chapter 23 is a day set aside for the purposes of the people of Israel to get their relationship with God back on track. And the way to do that was to be honest about their predicament that they were sinners and that they needed salvation. And so what we have in Leviticus chapter 16 is a description of what happens on that day that we already heard read out, so I'm not going to read it all again. But in chapter 16 on the Day of Atonement, I'm going to go over again for us briefly what happens. There's a great deal of detail described in chapter 16 about what took place. It was a day of worship like no other in the Jewish festival. It was one day of the year that the high priest and only the high priest could enter the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. He presented a sacrifice of atoning sacrifice for the people's sins, for the purification of their sins. Inside the most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a big rectangular box and that represented the resident presence of God. And the high priest sprinkled blood on what was called the mercy seat and the Ark of the, Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat was the remembrance that God would forgive sins if they were atoned for. So if an animal died in place of the people of Israel, the animal has taken the punishment the people for whatever they'd done that year and then they were free from sin. They were forgiven. They were, they were given mercy. But the animal had to be slain for the forgiveness of sin and the, of the priest and the congregation, not just the congregation, not just the convicts, but the, the chaplain and the convicts needed their sin forgiven, you see. So then a whole heap of different things went on there, which is very interesting. But the second big part that I want to point out on that day was this idea uh, from verse 15 onwards in chapter 16, of a scapegoat. If the people weren't already aware of the powerful symbolism that something needed to die for their sin, and if it wasn't that thing that died, it would be them, they then took a second symbol to really bring home the point, and they took a goat, and they sent that goat out of the camp. And they symbolically placed all the sins of the people on that goat, and the goat had to go off into the wild to take away the sin of the people. That was called the scapegoat. Now, this is so detailed 
that the Day of Atonement actually teaches us what Jesus came to do. In Romans chapter 3, we read that Jesus is the atonement for our sins. Remember when John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 see Jesus coming down to the Jordan River to be baptised? And what did, what did John call Jesus? He said, behold, here comes the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Isn't that amazing? What a wonderful prophecy right there on the riverbank. But the amazing thing is, from all the symbolism of the Old Testament, again, we don't have time to do this tonight, but if you look all the way forward to Ephesians chapter 1, what you're going to see is not only is Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, but Jesus is also our great high priest. Jesus is also the one who is completely in control. And the interesting thing is that on the day that Jesus was executed, he goes through a gate to get to Golgotha because he was in the city, right? And then he had to carry his cross and had to carry it outside to Golgotha. Have you ever wondered what gate Jesus went through? Might not have ever thought it was that significant. Well, the gate that Jesus went through today is called the Lion Gate in Jerusalem. But it used to be called the Sheep Gate. And the reason they called it the Sheep Gate was because when the people of Israel had stopped wandering in the desert with the tent and they built a temple and they did the Day of Atonement in the temple, they couldn't shoo a goat away from a campsite. They sent the goat out of the city with the sins of the people of Israel through the Sheep Gate the goat went through the sheep gate to take away the sins of the people. When Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, he went through the sheep gate. He is the scapegoat. He took upon himself to carry out a ceremony that would not be good for a year, but would last forever, one day. Rather than him having a day of rest, he went out and he did the greatest work a human being who was also fully God has ever done in history. Jesus allowed the oppressors, the Romans, to put him on a tree. He was completely in control, just like the priest would have been completely in control of a sacrifice. He was the priest and the sacrifice all at once. And he laid there on the cross, not as a victim, but willfully going to the cross. God is not a child abuser because the first thing is that Jesus was a full-grown adult by the time he went to the cross. And Jesus in the garden did pray to God and say, my, my, God, you know, my Father, if there's any other way, please let me do something else, but not my will, your will. See, Jesus knew how terrifyingly difficult this was going to be, but in the silence from God's response, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem and went as priest and sacrifice to do a great work for us that would ring through the ages. Just as a lamb was executed and killed because sin leads to death, so Jesus allowed himself to be executed and killed because sin leads to death. And because he didn't sin, he was like the scapegoat that had the sins of the people put on him so that he could take our sins away from us. The reason we need to continue to preach the cross in our generation, even if it's not popular, is there is nothing more powerful 
that can bring zealots and tax collectors together to be saved by the same one who has power over all. So even though there are oppressive authorities in our world and there are those who are oppressed, there is a king above all who sees all and one day will bring all injustice to an end. We've talked a bit about Isaac today. I remember back in 2005, Isaac asked us if we'd do a river convention in Sydney. And we thought it'd be fun to do a river convention on the Hacking River. And there was about three or 400 Aboriginal people came down to Sydney to join us on the Hacking River. It was also a very symbolic day. It was Australia Day. And on Australia Day, it was interesting that all these people with Australian flags running around the Shire stopped and looked at a group of Aboriginal people and Anglo-Saxon people celebrating together Jesus. We weren't actually celebrating Australia Day, not because we weren't patriotic, but we couldn't take our eyes off Jesus that weekend. Not a bad thing to celebrate our nation, but that day we, we were celebrating the reconciliation that only Jesus can bring to our two peoples. Isaac made a great big flag in those days and it was a black and white handshake and he preached, and I'll never forget, and he said the only thing that can reconcile Australians after all the horrible evil things that have happened is Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ died on that cross, he paid for all the wrongdoing that the Anglo-Saxon people did in Australia. And the reason myself as an Aboriginal man can be in fellowship with white people after all the bad things they've done to my people is because Jesus paid for their sin. If they have put their faith in him, he paid for that sin. But for those Anglo people who haven't put their faith in Jesus, he hasn't paid for their sin. But at the end of the age, on Judgment Day, they will receive their just desserts for what they have done. And that's why I can be reconciled to my brothers and sisters. There is nothing else that can actually come close to that level of reconciliation. Because Jesus has taken upon himself all the sin of my ancestors that divided me from Isaac's ancestors. And as a result, he's also taken all of Isaac's sin and all of my sin too. And we can be reconciled. And on that day, it was interesting seeing all these people walking around with Australian flags who couldn't work out what was going on. Because the white people in our group, we weren't wearing Australian flags. We were being Australian, but we were just worshipping Jesus. But then also, the other thing is, the demonstrators that we came across couldn't understand what we were doing either because we weren't joining in the demonstration to mark the day as sorry day. So the really interesting thing on Australia Day is we were confusing the right-wing people and the left-wing people because we weren't joining in on the bandwagon of the right-wing people or the left-wing people. We were on Jesus' bandwagon. And I'm not saying it's bad to have a political position. And I love it that people have the freedom in the church to vote for whoever they want and have whatever political opinion they want. But as we are politically active as Christians, can we remember Simon the Zealot and Matthew the Tax Collector? because I think they confused everybody in the first century too. It's the power of the cross that can bring a zealot and a tax collector together, and it's the power of the cross that can bring right-wing and left-wing people together in our age too. Let's be the peacemakers that Jesus calls on us to be, not throwing hate at other people and trying to change society to fix up sin. Let's be humble enough to realise that we are the problem and we need to be changed. And one by one, as people are changed to be forgiven of their sin, we can create a new Australia. Eileen's already, uh, Eileen's already said this in the past and, and Elva said it today. 
that the only thing that's going to really help Brewarna to go beyond the problems it's facing is the Lord Jesus. And it was interesting that I went to Walgett three years ago, just as the healing centre had started up, and I went in to get a coffee at Walgett, and the lady said to me, oh, where are you going? I said, I'm on my way to Brewarna. And she said, now, Walgett's only an hour away from Brewarna, right? And she goes, what's going on at Brewarna? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, the town is just changing. And if you compare Brewarna to Walgett, it's so different. Like, what's happening? And I said, oh, I think it's the church that's been started there where people are looking to Jesus to solve the problems. And she laughed and went, oh, don't hit me with that religious nonsense. I didn't argue with her. I just got my coffee because I just wanted a coffee. I didn't want to have an argument. But secondly, I thought, just wait and see. Just keep watching. And here, three years later, Elva is still saying, hey, Brewarner is changing. You know, the high school only has 120 teenagers in their high school and 80 of them go to the youth group. Kid, that's not going to change Brewarner. That little church in the main street was full at Easter. And yes, there were a lot of visitors, but there are a lot of people from the town that were there. Jesus changes everything. And he does it through the cross. And there is nothing more powerful in the human experience than to humble ourselves and say we're original sinners. Please forgive us, Lord Jesus. We don't come with anything in our hands. Please forgive us. In Ephesians chapter 1, I want to finish with this. Paul is thinking about these ideas when he busts out the biggest sentence, I think, in the New Testament. I feel sorry for whoever was writing it down this day because I could just imagine Paul pacing around going, oh, I'm getting all excited and the guy trying to keep up. Maybe it was Paul writing too, I don't know. But have a look at chapter 1, verse 3 as we finish. Praise be to the God our Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not just some, but every spiritual blessing. We don't need to add politics to Christianity to change the world. We just need to be Christians. And we're going to confuse everybody. Right-wing and left-wing people are going to laugh at us. But we will know, won't we, in verse 4, that for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through the Lord Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glory and glorious grace which has freely given us to the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. You know, I get so excited to think that if you do believe in Jesus, it's because God's Holy Spirit has helped you to believe. The work of Jesus on the cross that day was, even though Jesus said it is finished on the cross, because he finished his work of dying for our sin, but it just began too, didn't it? Because this beautiful ripple went out from the cross that day across the whole world and got all the way down to Australia. God is continuing to choose us, to predestine us, and to redeem us by the blood of Jesus in verse 7. And why did he do that? We finished the sermon as we started it. We said that God is good all the time, all the time God is good, and here Paul says that he did these things in accordance with the riches of his grace. God is good. My encouragement to you today is if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, this is a great day to do it. And my other encouragement to you is if you have trusted in Jesus, 
keep following and keep trusting in him. Because Paul goes on and says in verse 8 that he has lavished on us all wisdom and understanding. He's made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put at effect when the times reach the fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. You want to be someone who helps to bring unity to this world, to bring peace to this world, to bring grace to this world, to end injustice in this world? Then if you're chosen to believe in Jesus, let's keep trusting in him. And to finish tonight, I want to finish with those words of Jason Bakuya. And I'm going to say, God is good. And then in a minute, I'm going to invite you to say all the time, if you believe this message tonight, if you believe that the cross isn't an example of God as some cosmic child abuser, but God is good and he saved us. So would you join with me? God is good. All the time. And I hope you at home and at West Ride repeated that phrase with us tonight. I'm going to finish by praying. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have saved us. That yes, sin does lead to death, but Jesus died in our place. We thank you, Father, that from Ephesians we've been promised that when we believe we are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is our deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Lord God, help us to live in the new life that you have given us. You've given us a new spiritual nature. You've given us the Holy Spirit to live in us so that we can live for you instead of live for ourselves. Father, we thank you that you're changing the world. Help us to partner with you as you do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.